Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. I have a tremendous crowd of students with me today, and we're going to talk about use of a nap scene in the emergency room. Let's start with introductions. I'm Sadie. I'm Cody. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm also Cody. I'm Haley. I'm Jake. I'm Rebecca. All right, so you've heard most of the people in this group once before, I think. Cody, you were on a podcast, uh, on our inaugural podcast with Phil. Haley was there too, and we've had a couple of podcasts with Cody too, so to speak, <laughs> Chris and Rebecca in the last few weeks, and we've got Sadie joining us, and Sadie, tell us where you're from. Everybody else is from Rocky Vista, but you're from a different place, and speak up since you're the farthest from the mic. I'm from Lincoln Memorial University. It's in Tennessee. And we're very glad to have you here. We understand that somebody uh, asked Dr. Chill mm -hmm. to take you on as a student, and uh, Dr. Chill can't say no to people that he owes favors to. So, And you're also very lucky to be over there. We all like Dr. Chill quite a bit. I think uh, some of you have had the chance to rotate over there during non-COVID times. And let's see, where are we at? Who, who are we at? Cody, did you introduce yourself? We all already did. Everybody already did. All right, well, I got a little lost on the way. Um, at least I'm not agitated in need of There's an app scene. So, Jake, uh, tell us just a little bit more about yourself since this is, uh, this is your podcast. You developed the topic. Yeah, so I'm a fourth-year medical student, like you said, at Rocky Vista University. Um, I'm emergency medicine bound, at least hopefully. We'll find out come March. But I grew up in this area, and yeah, I did a, I did a number of emergency medicine rotations, and this topic definitely caught my eye just kind of seeing the disparities between the different ERs and how they use this medication. All right, so you, you came to me and you said, hey, I, I think the thing that interests me most since I get to do a podcast is I had two emergency rooms that were totally the only thing they used for agitation was an scene, and another two emergency rooms that never touched the stuff, even for headaches, even for nausea, uh, nothing. Have I got that right? Exactly. My first rotation, um, whenever a patient with agitation came in, it was always, you know, the B-52, the Haldol, the Benzo, plus the Benadryl, you know, and, we, and we'd sedate them that way. Um, Joperidol wasn't even discussed until my second rotation. That's kind of, like you said, all we used. And I, I kept asking them, and everyone said, it's back, it's back. You know, last year it, it, it came back. My very next rotation, it was gone again. Uh, no one used it. It was all, you know, the B-52. Um, and they, I asked them more about droperidol, and they're like, no, you know, FDA black box warnings. We can't use that. It's too dangerous. And then my next rotation, boom, back to droperidol, all my agitation patients. So it's kind of interesting to see the difference between the hospitals. Now, you said, hey, when I was in these two groups, one group said, no, it can't be used, black box warning. Never again. And the other group said, lots of data for this, totally safe. It's ex exactly what we should be using. You decided to go into the literature and take a look at this. Um, let's start off with the American Academy of Emergency. No, let's start off a little farther back. One of the students here, and I don't remember who, went back and looked at uh, kind of the history of droperidol. You mentioned that it came out in the 60s, but I think somebody has a little bit more data. Is that you, Cody? Yeah, so when I, when I started looking up um, droperidol, it showed up in 1971 with the FDA approval for four things, nausea, anxiety, vomiting, and sedation. So sedation is sort of an interesting issue, right? We, 
the FDA approval for enapsine disappeared for uh, reasons that I always believed had something to do with the issue of uh, chemical restraints. As I read the papers that Jake gave me, the history seems very different. Let's, let's just take a second and talk about droperidol in terms of chemical restraints. I think Cody too, you, you looked at that. Do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about the history of chemical restraints? Um, yeah, so basically chemical restraint, just like you might think there's a physical restraint. So it falls under that category of trying to control a patient's behavior. And chemical restraints, basically, um, from what I was looking at, there were there's kind of two ways of looking at it. There's the there's the emergency emergency department uh, perspective of there's a patient that's agitated agitated that's violent that you want to help control, and then there's also similar but um, well used a lot in the psychiatric wards where they want to control the patients, um, basically calm them down in a very similar way, but they would. They're having some different concerns over reports of restraints associated to deaths. And so that was leading to, we need to not uh, control these patients in this way. It's a tough question because I think anytime you're, you're working with agitation, healthcare providers are at risk and uh, the risk for injuries. And nobody wants to be a punching bag, right? And everybody, I think most people that work in emergency room settings, most people work in psychiatric settings, have awareness that our patients are very influenced by hallucinations and we need to do whatever we can to try and treat the agitation. So I was intrigued by the uh, FDA approval for sedation. Now we've changed that to some extent, right? The, the current FDA approval I think is even different. I think Haley, you were the one that found the current FDA approval. Yeah, so the only it labeled indicated use for right now is post-operative nausea and vomiting. So you can use it for prevention or treatment. Which is kind of interesting because enapsine, I think, in many ways was used to be one of our best tools for treatment of agitation, uh, for acute agitation for a very long time. But as far as medications go that have FDA indications for treatment of agitation or acute agitation, I think droperidol is not that medication now. So then the question becomes, I, I think, a little bit different, and it gets back to the root of why emergency rooms stopped using droperidol. And Jake, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that evolved? Yeah, exactly. So like you said, it came out in 1961. It was a mainstay in most emergency medicine up until 2001. In 2001, the FDA looked through 273 case reports of prolonged QTC and possible torsades. Um, they issued a black box warning on the medication and mandated that they wanted an EKG prior to the medication and then two to three hours after the medication. And if you're familiar with ED medicine, you know, an agitated patient, why we're giving this medication, you can't really use an EKG on them until, you know, you have them calmed down and sedated. And then it's even, you know, harder for two to three hours of continuous use. So practically in 2001 disappeared overnight. Um, throughout, and then you know, all, all emergency medicine kind of switched to Haldol, uh, benzos, other use of chemical sedation. Careful now, treatment of agitation. Treatment of agitation. Because we're not right. we're not trying to sedate people, and we're not trying to chemically sedate or chem chemically restrain. We're trying to treat agitation. I think is the the key part of that. And I think whenever you lose focus of treatment of agitation or treatment of psychosis that's causing agitation, I think that's when you start getting in trouble if you're just trying to settle somebody down. Right. So uh, overnight, almost, um, based on 
277 cases, roughly 75% of those were reported from outside the United States. Five cases where the doses were less than 2.5% had evidence for QT elevation. Yeah, exactly. So out of those, uh, yeah, like you said, 75% were from outside of the United States and many of them were actually duplicated. Um, and so they went back and looked through them recently and it showed that most of the QT prolongation leading to torsades was in doses between 100 to 300 milligrams, not like the typical 5 to 10 milligram doses used in the ED. Um, I think the other part of that was that in many of those cases there were also confounding conditions or medications that could have been uh, additive or the primary problem. Exactly. Um, a lot of those patients were on other medications that as well have been known to uh, cause QT prolongation like Zofran and, and other said med medications. So this uh, article from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, they looked at about 500 articles roughly. They sifted it down to somewhere around 35 and then they made recommendations. Uh, class B recommendations that this is a reasonable medication for the use of for treatment of headaches, agitation, nausea. Um, they said that there's no evidence. This was a class A recommendation. Um, no evidence for use of an EKG when using doses of 2.5 milligrams or less. And if I understand correctly, that 2.5 milligram dose would be the dose that you might use with nausea, vomiting, and headaches. And then the higher doses would be the agitation doses. Does that sound? Uh, right. Exactly. The under 2.5 was post-surgical nausea, vomiting, or, you know, in pregnancy, and then 5 and 10 were more of the kind of acute agitation. Now, they also said that uh, as far as treatment of agitation, it was as safe as the alternatives. In other words, as safe as Haldol or Haloperidol, and I assume they were making the comparisons between largely that because that, that seems to be maybe more commonly used than Zoprazidone. Mm -hmm. And then there's been several studies in the literature since its kind of disappearance. In 2005, there was a study of 149 patients, 2010, 91, 2015, 1009, and the list goes on until 2020. There was just one published of close to 6,000. In February 2020, there's a list close to 16,000 patients, all of them evaluating kind of the safety profile of droperidol. They looked at the QT prolongation, and it does seem like it does, in a dose-dependent fashion, raise your QT interval, yet there has been no reported deaths of torsades in less than 10 milligrams. Most of those deaths were, were from like, you know, two to 300 milligrams. So it seems that the AAE, uh, the American Academy of Emergency Physicians statement saying, you know, under 10, there's been no reported deaths from torsades that it's safe, go ahead, use it. There were a couple of articles that you sent me that I also read, two of them I, I liked a great deal. Um, one of them was a review and a case series in the Mayo Clinic, and this was Dr., I believe the name is Dr. Ga, and you mentioned that, that this medication was used primarily in the two locations you were at for uh, acute agitation treatment, but the, the Ga article, more than half the time it looks like droperidol can be used for pain syndromes. Did either of the emergency rooms that were not using droperidol for agitation, did they use it for pain management, headaches, anything along those lines? Not that I know of. Um, all the patients, at least, that I took care of, we never used droperidol at all. 
What about at the other emergency room where you were using droperidol for acute yeah, agitation? Yeah, it seems like they would. I know in one they would uh, they would give a milligram if morphine was indicated for any kind of pain. Um, and I know I read one review article where it showed that the ER use of morphine went from about 50 to about 34 milligrams if you included droperidol as well. So it, it kind of seemed like it, it decreased, I mean, it increased the effect of, of the morphine. It also seemed like it reduced the need for it, period. I think the article by Ga made the, the case that in many cases, 1% uh, of the people that ended up being treated for pain syndromes, and I think that was headaches specifically, but I, I'm not sure, right. and it ended up needing additional opioid rescue medication, which I was impressed with. They made the case at the end of this that, hey, dummy, there's an opioid epidemic here, and based on uh, this really crazy dosing of inapsane, also known as droneperidol, um, we now have limitations on what we can use. And I thought that was an interesting case to make, that, that we're not weighing the, the risks and the benefits well on this medication if the alternative becomes opioids. And I think on a cost-benefit uh, analysis, that's what it sounded like in terms of treating headaches. Our choices become opioids. They become uh, substances that are much more expensive or uh, droperidol. Yeah, and it seems like droperidol is the clear answer. Um, at least in the emergency departments that brought it back, all of the physicians over 50-55, you know, were reliving their glory days, finally being able to use this medication again for headaches, for nausea and vomiting. Whereas the newer physicians, you know, they've never heard of the medication. They're pretty, they, they didn't know it. So, so you're right. It, it seems like it has a lot of different uses in nausea, vomiting, migraine, uh, as well as agitation in the ED. Two things that you said. One, one was the reliving of the glory days with the physicians over 55. That was exactly one of the comments in the GA article, which was there's a generation of physicians that don't know how to use this medication. And I thought that was fascinating because I'm in that generation, um, even though I'm in the over 50 crowd, oddly enough. Um, the second thing that I thought was interesting was that there's a lot of um, frustration about the FDA's decision to require an EKG before use with this medication. It felt like that was, um, that there was a lot of, a lot of people who felt like this was a very rash decision considering um, how many doses, how many millions of doses were there and no reports of problems? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember the exact number, but through all the articles I read, there was thousands and thousands evaluated and millions of doses given and no, uh, no reports of the torsades and deaths. 25 million unit doses in one of the years and no, no uh, deaths in those cases, unless you started going on the very, very high doses and all of the cases in the lower doses, at least for the headaches and so forth, seem to be pretty safe. Now, the, the one problem that I have with this is, is that uh, on your test, on the shelf exam, one of the key parts or one of the things that you will be tested on is the things that each medication is known for, right? And so uh, Zeprazidone, if you get a test question on Zeprazidone, the likely question is going to be what? QT prolongation. <laughs> QT prolongation. And yet I, I think one of the things that I was hoping somebody would look for was, is there any data that we're having QT prolongation deaths associated with use of of uh, any of these medications, and there's a lot of data, at least with droperidol, that there's not a lot of risk associated with that. 
but I, I still have not seen a lot of data suggesting risk with, with suprazidone. I don't know if it's just I haven't looked in the right places or if it's not all that risky, even though it came with that warning as well. Were any of you able to find any information about uh, zeprazidone and the risk of QT elevation? Me and Becca were looking through a few of the articles and looking for that answer specifically, and we still didn't find any. It doesn't seem like the data is readily available. And yet, be ready for that on the shelf exam, right? Yep. <laughs> um, speaking of antipsychotic medications, there are only a few that have FDA approvals for acute treatment of agitation. I believe that zeprazidone is one of those. And I think I mentioned that eripiprazole had a short-acting injection that was used in that uh, manner. And I don't think that's currently available. Did any of you uh, see anything more about that? Other short-acting, other medications that have short-acting, other antipsychotics that have short-acting options include what? Do you guys remember? Quetiapine. Quetiapine does not have a short-acting injection. So we've mentioned haloperidol. Olanzapine, not not risperidone. Sorry, you're over two there, <laughs> and I'm not going to say which Cody that is. Yep. Uh, so olanzapine, olanzapine, and geodon, which is also known as zeprazidone, um, haloperidol, aripiprazole, thorazine has one, but uh, it's not used very much, and um, prolixin, which is flufenazine, also has a short-acting injection, also not used very much. And I believe that uh, asenapine has an indication for acute agitation, but I'm not sure about that. I have to check. Do you know why I believe that? How is um, asenapine delivered to the human body? So we've mentioned what five shots. So if it's not injected uh, parenterally, Orally, sort of. Sublingual. What's sublingual. sublingual, right? Yeah, so it's a sublingual medication that has very, very rapid onset. And uh, I, I'll have to double check on that, but I think it may also have an acute agitation indication. Now, there were a few other assignments that we had on this uh, podcast. And uh, let's see, Chris or Rebecca, do either of you guys have anything you want to add that hasn't been tackled or, or added already yet? I think Jake covered it all, everything I looked at. All right, so so Jake, just to recap, here's the big question, and I think this is a question that Haley mentioned before you came in. Is She looked up current indication. I said, where's the package insert? And we looked for it, and it's hard to find. This is actually one of the harder package inserts to find. We mentioned that the current FDA approval is for indication of nausea and vomiting associated with surgical procedures, and undoubtedly that uh, medications use is being bent to the will of a lot of emergency room physicians in other locations. So here's the question. Tell me why you might use a medication off-label when there are two or three medications that have FDA approval for use in this setting. Mm -hmm. So comparing it to Haldol, I like to think of Droperidol as kind of the younger, faster cousin. Haldol takes about 20 to 30 minutes to kick in um, and it has less of a sedative effect, more of an antipsychotic effect, versus droperidol, it's a three to 10 minute onset. So it's roughly a third of the time to work, which is, you know, if you're in the emergency room, I, I remember one particular patient, the police brought in, you know, six police officers on him. Um, this guy was struggling, almost pulling them all off, just screaming at the top of his lungs. 30 minutes versus three to 10 minutes is. 
it's is a lifetime. Way, yeah, it's, it's a lifetime. Um, another medication that's commonly used are benzodiazepines, but like we talked last week in one of our podcasts, there's a lot of cons to those. Um, they're more sedating. Um, you have more airway issues. Um, you have to give them more often and dose more frequently versus the droperidol. And then as well, they have a slower onset of action. Um, and so I think why it's, it's so used now, at least in the hospitals that brought it back, it's, it's fast, it's safe, um, at least compared to the other antipsychotics in its class, um, and it works. I thought it was interesting, the Claver, Claver article, is that right? The 1,500 patients that they had that they treated for agitation. Um, they did 1,000 EKGs on these different patients. They found, what, 13 people that had increased QT uh, interval, and I don't know if that was before or after. It wasn't clear to me reading the paper, and they attributed that to amiodarone, methadone, escitalopram, pre-existing conditions. No torsades in any of those patients they gave this medication to. 34 staff injuries. Yeah, this is serious stuff. I, I feel like, you know, as a, as a medical student, whenever those very acutely agitated, dangerous patients come in, we all kind of hover and hug up to the, the back wall and let, you know, the real ER nurses go to town because they're tackling, they're wrestling, everyone has a different extremity. It's dangerous stuff. I've seen broken noses, uh, bleeding, you know, noses. Uh, I've seen a couple of my nurse colleagues get hit in the eye, um, you know, just from these agitated patients. So... Time of onset's huge. And then, like you said in this study, they, they viewed 1,500 patients with a QT interval, I think it was at yeah, 1.3%, but no deaths. And I mean, that's just highlighted in the study from February 2020, July 2020, tens of thousands of patients evalu uh, evaluated. And yes, in a lot of cases, the QT prolongation is increased, but yet no deaths from torsades. So I think that's a little overstated in that black box warning back in 2001. It's what it seems like. One of the things that uh, evidence-based medicine teaches us is that we, we should make decisions on outcomes, not on what we think the proposed mechanism of action is and how we think that might lead to some possible consequence or outcome. And I think this is one of those cases where QT interval changes haven't necessarily led to the kinds of deaths and destruction that, that the black box warning might lead us to believe. Uh, in any case, it's still kind of got this threshold to overcome, and it'd be kind of nice to be able to see this medication submitted for uh, an FDA approval for some sort of dosing for the emergency room docs so that they're not hanging out there a little bit, right? Using off-label stuff is a little harder. Yeah, and it's just so new. I mean, this uh, American Reagent is kind of the company that brought it back, and they started manufacturing again in February 2019. So we're talking, you know, year, year and a half since it's been back and at least talking to a lot of the physicians in these emergency rooms, most of them never heard of it or thought it was just a medication of the past. So it's not too widespread yet. So a new medication that's 60 years old. Exactly. <laughs> 50 years old. I've got to work on my math here. All right. So let's go ahead and get take homes from everybody. Let's, uh, let's start with you, Sadie. Take home uh, thoughts, uh, key aspects of this, something that you thought was important about this podcast. Um, I think uh, like the type of medicine you use definitely makes a difference in like that type of time period. And being in the emergency room, you don't really have you know any that much time in the world to figure all that out. So I think it's good to take into consideration. 
So, so let me just make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. It's nice to have really good tools when you're working in the emergency room. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true everywhere too, right? And being able to know why you use those tools and how you're safe use, using them, even though you're somewhat off-label, I think makes a, a difference. And I think one of the things I liked about uh, the Academy of Emergency Medicine, no, what, the American Academy of Emergency Physicians. Yep. Uh, one of the things I like about that is it gives some sort of cover for physicians where they're saying, hey, you know what, we think this is an important treatment because we're listing this as approved with um, level B certainty or level A certainty without the EKG, we want you to be able to use it and practice best medicine possible. And I think that helps even though there's not an FDA indication. We don't have that on our side of things, right? And I, I think that goes back to some of the ideas about chemical uh, restraints, right? Uh, Cody, one, thoughts or takeaways? <laughs> yeah, something that crossed my mind when we were talking about the time of onset for this drug and also comparing it to using benzodiazepines for acute agitation. It seems like these people calm down a lot quicker and they recover faster when, they, when they've been giving, given a dose of this droperidol. And what crossed my mind when we were talking about that is just how busy our emergency rooms are right now with COVID-19 and whatever else you want to consider. Our hospital beds, our emergency rooms are busy and full. It seems like this is a potential um, alleviating drug that might free up time, free up space in, in our emergency departments. So that's kind of interesting, yeah. And one comment on that, I don't have the uh, study right here in front of me to cite, but I was just reading one that compared the use of this droperidol to a standalone benzo to standalone Haldol, and they evaluated the in-emergency room time to dispo, and it showed that droperidol was statistically significant for a lower time to dispo, which like you said, especially in this time of COVID, any ED bed is you know gold. So if we can get our patients in and out of the emergency room quicker, it's more valuable. So I'm gonna, I wanna follow up on that. So one of the things that you hear is that the emergency rooms are slower because people are not using those for primary care the way that has been an issue in the past. But I, I think, Jake, your experience is that uh, depending on the emergency room, it can be incredibly busy if you're in a, in a COVID area or non-COVID area. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. I was just in Texas, which is one of the state's most hit, and our emergency room from when I first got there was about two hours. Um, that's kind of before this peak started happening, and towards the end of the peak, we were at about 15 to 20 hours. And the problem wasn't necessarily of getting patients in and out. It was the entire hospital was full. So our emergency room turned into you know a makeshift ICU almost, so it was hard to get any kind of movement. However, our psych patients... Uh, we had several facilities that were open and taking patients, so anytime you know we could get them in, figure out what's going on, decrease the agitation, and dispo them out to a psych facility was very valuable, because then we could use that bed for a patient struggling with COVID or some other disease or condition. I've I've been wondering about that. I don't know if you had the opposite as well, where people were hesitant to come into the emergency room because of concerns of contracting COVID. Oh, absolutely. We uh, at least when I started this journey. Um, the ED complaints from when I started to finishing were completely different. There were no more, you know, I broke my ankle or just these small complaints. If you're coming to the ER knowing, you know, there's COVID there, they had good reason. So there were multiple heart attacks, strokes, and 
and then COVID itself caused a number of, you know, pulmonary embolisms, increased heart attacks, all those uh, risk factors included. So yeah, the emergency room turned into a lot, a lot higher acuity care. It's a It's interesting too because um, I, I would say that having a broken ankle might be a good reason to show up at the emergency room, and you call that smaller on the list of things. Uh, uh, so I, I'll I'll just you know be quiet at this point. But thank you for giving us some of those insights, uh, Chris. Take home. Um, yeah, I, I agree with the other comments that have been made. I do have a question for Jake. Um, I guess this kind of like exposes my lack of knowledge of like cardiology, but is it so like QT prolongation, you guys kind of are, in, are making it sound like that's not serious, but does that require any follow up? Or would you recommend doing like a, like a pre discharge EKG on the patient to know if they have that or not? Or is that just yeah, so, not a benign thing? Yep. So QT prolongation is a very common condition that leads to torsades. And torsades is a fatal you know, uh, heart condition that if not treated, could kill you pretty quick. And so when we talk about QT prolongation, what we're really worried about is torsades. So I think how I saw it used is we couldn't really get an EKG in the patient prior to administration, but once they calmed down and if they were willing, we would throw it on for good measure just to you know, satisfy kind of the FDA black box warning. However, the American Academy of Emergency Physicians stated that you know the, the class, I think is A or B, I forget what you mentioned. Class A for doses under 2.5. Yeah, it doesn't recommend using an EKG at all. And so we were, I think the physicians I was working with were kind of bouncing back be, between the two. If they could safely get an EKG, they did. Um, if they couldn't, they didn't. My sense was that if you were giving the 10 milligram dose, which is more common for the agitation, that there might be a reason to get the EKG as soon as you can. Um, but that that's that wasn't really explicitly said in the recommendations either. What was more explicit was 2.5 milligrams and under, no need. Exactly. And then they did emphasize that up to 10, there's been no reported deaths from torsades, but there still has been, you know, cases of prolongated QT. So I guess it would be advantageous to get an EKG. So for the like 1.3% that does show that they have QT prolongation, is there any follow-up or can you just send them on their way and that's not a big deal? I've heard people say that uh, you can have QT prolongation based on what you eat. So I, I, think, I think this whole issue for me is very difficult, right? We, in 2001, about the time that Droperidol got the black box warning, there was uh, a new medication coming out called Zeprazidone. And from my perspective, it seemed like the, the king of the antipsychotic medications at the time, uh, which was uh, olanzapine, it seemed like they picked up on this trend of increased QT that was found in the studies and why, why it was done, I don't know. And, and that was all we heard about from every drug company that was stopping by. And pharmaceutical reps, there used to be a few more of them hanging out a little more at the places I was at. I don't know if that's still the same in some of the training facilities. It seemed like generally there are fewer pharmaceutical reps now than there were at that time. But we got inundated with QT prolongation bad, QT prolongation bad, be careful with this medication. And, and at the end of the day, 20 years later almost, I'm still not sure that I've ever seen this medication, uh, Zeprazidone, be dangerous because of a QT prolongation. 
And, and so the hypothetical risks of these QT interval changes are hard to understand. I mean, even talk to some people and they'll talk about these QT interval changes changing over the day. And that, you know, getting one reading at one point might not give you the same reading later. But that's what I think I know. And, and what's real, I just, I just don't know. What I think I take home at the end of the day is there are a whole lot of psychiatrists giving uh, zeprazidone to patients without checking an EKG first, and we're just not hearing anything come back about that being dangerous. It seems like we would have heard, man, can you believe the psychiatrist that ended up doing this? And man, he's losing his license, he's losing his job, he's you know, losing his uh, car and whatever else. And, and so I, I just, I think at this time, the question about QT interval became really, really important. I don't remember hearing it be so important 10 years later as I did during that time in my career. So, so I think there's something about this confluence of marketing, a confluence of one new medication that it was edging in on, on a $100 billion industry. And, and the reason it was going to be a popular drug was because the president, as many of you know, has much less weight liability than olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone, which were the medications that were the second generation antipsychotics that were available at the time. That was the, those were the four that there were going to be. And one was clearly, clearly much better with regards to weight. And so if you're going to compare yourself to the one medication that's not causing weight problems, if you can't do it with efficacy, then do it with QT, I think. And, and whether that's real, whether that's imagined on my part, I just don't know. Right? I just don't know what the reality of all of those things are. But I think the QT interval has become one of the great question marks. And probably if you were to talk to a cardiologist, that cardiologist would tell you that unless somebody has a history of torsades or a family history of torsades, um, or unless their QT is over 500, probably don't worry, even though I think the recommendations are for you to start worrying somewhere around 450. Cody, any insights on that? That's, I saw something about 440 and 450 with males and females, but that's all I've really looked into. And did your car the cardiologist you're working with, did they tell you when to worry, when not to worry? So I'll let you know. I got a cardiology rotation coming up in a couple months. So. All right, please do let us know because I think it would be great to, to know these things. By the way, don't hold, don't hold me to anything that I'm talking <laughs> about outside of psychiatry, and even then, read and verify it yourself, right? So... Uh, any other questions or takeaways, Cody? Uh, just how it's such an interesting topic of a drug that's been used before, went away, coming back. It's just kind of an awesome thing about medicine. You don't always know exactly what's going on. So you got to study. you got to really, really try and learn everything. Yeah. Haley? Yeah, along that same grain, I think this is just a perfect example of how you can't learn everything in medicine from a textbook. Up to date, it says the only indication is for post-operative nausea and vomiting, but the emergency physicians are bringing it back for agitation and it's part of the art of medicine. You get to choose as a physician what you will or will not use based on your experience and the research that you come across. Best evidence available, yeah. I like that. Uh, Rebecca, we'll skip Jake. We'll get him last. Um, I think I just wanted to give a little plug for the, this whole podcast activity and I think it's a great learning opportunity for your students and it really teaches us how to be able to look for good evidence, and I think that'll be um, very valuable even when we go out to practice to be able to find the most um, up-to-date information to be able to better take care of our patients. 
Yeah, I like that a lot because I think a lot of students come in here and have been very successful reading up to date. I don't remember. Have I told you guys, guys, I want more than up to date, right? And and what I really like, Haley, is you pull up up to date and you say, here's what it says in up to date, which is accurate, right? But I think there is a bigger story here, and there might be a place where in terms of an opioid epidemic where we haven't been very responsible, emergency rooms, especially looking at nausea, vomiting, headaches, um, it looks like there's a ton of data here that this is just a really, really great choice and that that black box took all of those treatments away from us in a way that may have been a, a factor in the, in the opioid crisis that we have. A factor, I'm not trying to blame the crisis on that, just to be clear. <laughs> I, I'm, and I'm glad you like that, uh, Rebecca. Thank you for throwing in the plug there. Jake, you get the last word. Yeah, thank you. Um, based on the cases and the patients I saw when droperidol was used, it, it just felt better. It felt like the patients weren't completely knocked out on benzos or it didn't take forever, you know, with Haldol or some of the other medications we used. It just seemed like it worked. So I think whatever residency I end up matching at, if they use droperidol or not, I plan to, you know, review these articles and cases and hopefully get this approved. And that's kind of my hope is nationally this medication gets re-recognized um, and then taken back to the FDA. And hopefully this black box warning can be reevaluated based on the new research and data that we've accumulated over the last 20 years. I like that goal a lot. I, I think anytime you're practicing within the bounds of what a group of other physicians have decided is reasonable, you're in a, in a safer space than if you're saying, gosh, I think we know this and nobody else does. That's usually a bad space to be in. And having the FDA behind you is the best space to be in. But I, I think we, I think there's a lot of evidence in the articles we read that, that maybe the FDA made a decision that we, we think wasn't as helpful as it could have been in this case. So. Very good, Jake. Thanks for putting this podcast together. Very interesting background on that and how you came to the question. Hopefully we have more of those in the next few weeks as we have more questions from our fourth-year students who have been out and rotating around and having fun. On that note, guys, thank you and team out. Team out.